Superpowers on the Superpower Up podcast, the show that lifts the voice of love from orgasms to superpowers and everything in between. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sex, Love, and Superpowers podcast show. I am your host, Tatiana Berende, and today I have a very special guest with me, is Catherine Tomlinson, and we are going to be discussing plant medicines, sex work, and the sacred feminine. Let me tell you a little bit about Catherine before we get started. For the last 10 years, Catherine has been studying psychedelics in hopes of one day becoming a psychedelic facilitator. She's continued her pursuit of this dream to this day, however. Five years ago, she unexpectedly heard a calling she wasn't expecting, to walk into a small divey strip club and put on her first pair of six-inch heels. While the two career paths may seem unrelated, she realized through the pursuit of stripping and psychedelic medicines that her purpose on this planet is to elevate the feminine. Currently, she's a stripper in San Francisco while she continues to pursue her education around psychedelics as a healing modality. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you, Tatiana. Yeah, so no one is exempt from our starter question. What are your superpowers? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say I have a very high aptitude for compassion. Um, I feel like one of my superpowers is living without shame and being an example of, of to others of that it's possible to live mm. with at least significantly reduce shame. <laughs> um, I would say um, my, and I would also say my curiosity and inquisitive nature. Hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. So, so, yeah, I mean, this topic of shame is a really big one, especially in you, my dear, did not choose the easiest career paths, either of them. Um, you know, both both the realm of of psychedelics and plant medicines and you know sexuality and stripping are you know those are those are pretty shadow shadow spaces that you have found yourself called into um, yeah definitely I, I often joke that i'm a walking taboo because i've devoted my life to sex and drugs uh-huh. and yet and yet you 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 do so so openly and and without shame talk to us a little bit about that process for you. I was just in a, in a session with a client today and, and shame around sex was a big part of our conversation. What, mm. what has that, you know, has there been a dismantling process for you? What's, what's your experience with that been like? Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember when I first decided that I wanted to be a stripper and, you know, I sat when after I decided I sat with the decision for a few months before I actually like pulled the trigger and, and did it. And I remember one night um, laying awake and just like really questioning myself and being like, gosh, and like, I I can't believe I'm considering this career path. Like, does this mean that there's something really wrong with me? Like, am I like, just like, am I super messed up because I want to do this? Which is, you know, essentially internalized like whorephobia um, coming out. Um, and yeah, like there was definitely, I think for my first year, I still had thoughts like that that would occur occasionally making me wonder if like, if I was actually like, okay. Um, 
but yeah, I think what helped me was that as like more time passed, especially in my line of work, I just kind of realized that I had the opportunity to present this as a healing modality. Um, and that there wasn't anything wrong with my job and that my job made me very, very happy. Um, so a lot of that letting go of shame was just coming to the point where I was able to really own that in myself. And I think, I feel like after you, um, become a stripper and you take on that, like that mantle of stigma that this culture kind of hands to you, hands to you, and you're able to sit with comfort within that, all of the other pieces around sexuality kind of become a lot easier mm-hmm. to accept. Like I've been, um, contemplating, kink a lot more lately and trying to like look at how people have shame around that for instance um and i've noticed that i as my as myself i don't really struggle very much with like shame around the more like shadow sides of sexuality um and i think a lot of that had to do with being a dancer and also engaging with people that you know in my line of work who would tell me about their their own kinks Mm -hmm. So how do you view sex work as a healing modality? Or how do you explain that? Yeah. So I view sex work. Okay. So let me take a step back a little bit. So there, when we're sick, if we're physically sick, we go and see a doctor. If we're emotionally sick, we go and see a therapist. If we, our sexual needs aren't being met, who, who are we supposed to go to? Like, why is it a bad thing if you realize that your sexual needs aren't being met, that you go to someone who can can meet them? I personally see sexual expression as a pillar of health, and I think it's something that the vast majority of people need in order to feel healthy. Um, Agreed. Yeah. And so, but it's, it's interesting, though, too, because in the strip club, you know, you have people who want all sorts of interactions with you. Like some of them, um, I feel like the healing is through like pleasure and fun and joy, which I feel like a lot of people sometimes forget that healing can look like that. Um, right. It doesn't all have to be hard, difficult work. Mm-hmm. And for some people, they're craving like deeper intimacy and they're able to go in the club and receive that. Like last like, like last night I was at work and the first guy that I worked with um, was a widow and he just really wanted like connection and intimacy because he hadn't had that for a while. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're going to go to a quick break. I'm really curious. I have more questions for you because I'm an inquisitive person. Uh, <laughs> hence me running a podcast. So before we go to break, will you tell people where they can go to find out more about you and your work? Yeah. Um, I have an Instagram. Um, it is under, um, it's Shakti Shorty, Shakti Shorty, no, no spaces or anything like that. C C H A K T I S H O R T Y, um, on Instagram. And then you can also find me on Facebook under Catherine Tomlinson. And my last name is spelled T-O-M-L-I-N-S-O-N. Wonderful. So we're talking with Catherine Tomlinson about plant medicines, sex work, and the sacred feminine. More when we get back. Stay tuned. Mm -hmm. 
Are you here to change the world? Do you talk about things like vibration, frequency, awakening, and consciousness? Are you pretty sure you have superpowers? The Superpower Net is unlike normal coaching programs and conscious communities. We provide training, intuitive guidance, peer-to-peer learning, intensive one-on-one coaching, and a high vibrational network of people just like you. When you join the Net, you get 24-7 access to a collaborative group of people who support you as you master your personal power and unlock your superpowers. If you're ready to use your superpowers to change the world, then join the Superpower Net today. Visit superpowerexperts.com slash the net to learn more. All right, we're back. So I have so many questions for you and I don't know where to start. Um, One of the things that you mentioned in your bio was realizing that that one of your feel like your life purpose is to elevate the feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you say to people who say that choosing the path of a stripper is exploiting the feminine instead of elevating it? Um, I feel like that disregards the narrative of actual sex workers and that we should listen to sex workers and their own um, experiences. Um, so for me personally, like I, like I had this, this happened kind of the other day where a customer came in and he was like really confused and was like, didn't understand it. And he was like, isn't this just like objectifying? Like, I don't really get it. And I was like, well, I personally don't feel objectified, um, but that's like my personal experience. Um, but that's huge. Yeah, it, it's huge. There, there are, you know, it's, it's also like, I also don't want to dismiss um, the narrative that some sex workers have where they do feel objectified um, mm-hmm. because this is a job and people are going to respond to it in different ways. Um, I... I tell them that I feel like the strip club is a place where women can go and they can perform femininity and they can get paid for it. I feel like in the rest of the world, I feel like women are expected to do things like perform emotional labor and like be pretty and all of this stuff. And it mostly, and they're not even getting paid for it. Um, and to me, that feels a little more like the inherent sexism that's present in our culture and women being disempowered because of it, I feel like is more like, that's just a really impressive part of our culture in general. And I feel like the strip club kind of turns that on its head because it's taking all of the things that should be oppressive to me and it's demanding that I get paid for it. Mm. Mm -hmm. And get paid well. Yes. Well, you know. Like, and again, like I get paid well, um, but that doesn't, I, I don't think that the validity of whether or not, you know, how much money someone is making in this field shouldn't be a proof of their validity, if that makes sense. Because there are a lot of strippers that don't make a lot of money. And I, I know that like my first few years of dancing, I really didn't, well, and I didn't have a conception of like what a lot of money was, um, <laughs> um, but I did not make very much money in my first few years of dancing. Why do you think that was? Um, it was several different things. A lot of it had to do with where I was working. 
um, my first, the first club I worked at consistently was this cute little strip club that opened up at Olympia and it was only open for six months. I was there and it was open and I was there on the last day it closed. And you know, there wasn't, it was a new business. There wasn't a lot of money going through it. Um, and also like, yeah, I just, I, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I didn't have like a mentor coming in. Like I kind of had to figure everything out on my own. And, you know, there are, there's just like certain clubs have certain earning potentials. And when I, after, after the club in Olympia closed down, I started working in Portland. Um, and I don't know if most of the viewers probably don't know this, but um, Portland has the most strip clubs per capita. Um, oh, but it's the, the population. So it has 50 strip clubs in Portland, but the population is such that, you know, it's, it's, it's a fairly small, it's not a, it's not a huge city. Mm-hmm. So most of the dancers in Portland that I've spoken to, like they're not used to making like um, making it a, a huge amount of money. Some are, there definitely are some, but I feel like the vast majority of them are not. Um, it wasn't until I came to San Francisco and I'm in the club that I'm in now that I've been in for the last three years that I really started being able to make decent money. And that's mostly just because I'm, I'm in the, the right club at this point. Mm-hmm. And what does it take to get into the right club? Is you have to, is it like about who, you know, or how does that work? Um, honestly, like it, it depends on how you carry yourself. It depends on how you look. Yes. Having connections help. Um, the reason I was able to get into this club is that in San Francisco, all the clubs are owned by the same company. And after working, I worked at a club called the Condor, um, for a year. And that's, that was actually the first strip club in the U S and I worked there and the manager after a year of being there, I actually asked the manager if I could have a recommendation to move to the specific club that I am now. And he, he gave it to me. So that was how I moved over. But honestly, like sometimes people get really lucky and they, you know, they come in, they've never danced before and they get hired. So it's, it's really variable. It really depends on the person. It depends on the manager that's there. It depends on what's going on in the club and how many girls they need. So it's kind of a mix of like who you know and luck. <laughs> so you said something interesting that I want to discuss a little bit further with you. You said it you know, can depend on how you look. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that the stripping industry, the strip club industry, is perpetuating a certain ideal of what sexy is supposed to look like? That's a complicated thing. So what for me, I actually feel like stripping kind of opened my eyes to the many different ways that people can be beautiful. Um, Because it's like you go into the strip club and you're like, oh, most of these girls don't look like the models that I'm used to seeing, but they're still like so pretty and they still have like so much energy and presence and sensuality and sexiness. So on one hand, it it has kind of expanded my view of like what sexy looks like. And also at the other, there's definitely certain body types that you're much less likely to see in the industry. And I feel like that is definitely a harder aspect of the, of the job, especially at the club that I work at, because, you know, they are, they, it's like, while there are many different ways of like being beautiful in that club that's still kind of like, like most of the girls are very like thin and petite. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, it's kind of like, it's hard to say if it's upholding or if it's just kind of responding to what the general public has been 
socialized to believe what is beautiful. Yeah, it's kind and, of a perpet. It's kind of a catch twenty two almost. You know, yeah, like- it is, and it's like I wish that there was more diversity in my club and that there was more like more body types being represented. And at the same time, too, I also understand that my primary market that I'm working off of is like rich white men. So it's kind of playing to their preferences in that specific club. If the other the other clubs, if they they play to different preferences, they'll have like if you have like the, cl- the club I worked at before was more about the girl next door. Like that was kind of what they wanted. So there there was a lot more representation um, in like what was beautiful. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. so one of the things that you mentioned that you've been studying for a long time is psychedelics. Mm-hmm. How do you see sex work and psychedelics being connected? Yeah. So there's, there's two parts to that question. So I felt like, so when I was like, when I was, I was still in high school, it was my last year of high school. I met someone um, and he talked to me about his experiences with psychedelics and I remember the, one of the things he said to me is that they weren't addictive. And I remember just kind of being really shocked because I was like, oh, I thought all illegal drugs were addictive. And that led me to a six-month inquiry where I spent a lot of time on the website Arrowhead, um, which is a drug uh, da- database for people who aren't familiar. And I just spent like six months educating myself on them before I took them. And I remember one of the prominent thoughts I have being was just like, society had lied to me (laughs) and that, you know, that these were, these were not what I had thought they were. Mm -hmm. And after I started experimenting and opening myself up with psychedelics, it kind of led to this inquiry of like, what else has society lied to me about? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And yeah, at that point, I think because I'd kind of already opened my mind that the cultural programming wasn't what I thought it was it made me examine also like the, the examination of sex work also started to come up and that kind of just led me to having like this curiosity and desire of like, well, is it what they say it is or could this actually be like a helpful thing? Um, the other part goes to kind of like, and this is an idea that's kind of matured and fermented in me over time and has kind of like synergized with like my plant medicine use um, but we're in a time right now where um, the feminine is is in the process of being elevated, especially within spiritual communities. But I also see this in our like larger framework. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And are you familiar with the eagle condor prophecy? Yes, very. Okay. Um, is it all right if I explain it? Because I'm figuring mm-hmm. all the viewers don't know it. Cool. Yeah. So the eagle condor prophecy is a prophecy from the Amazon. Um, and the prophecy states that there will come a time where the path of the masculine of technology, um, will rise, will rise and, but it will rise at the expense of the feminine, which is the people who are marginalized, the indigenous, it's the passive intuition, it's the feminine. Um, however, there will also come a time where the feminine will come to rise to meet the eagle and they will fly together in unison in the sky. But this prophecy isn't just going to happen. We have to actually take steps to actualize it. Well, and I'm going to, I'm going to just pause you for a minute because my okay. deeper understanding of that 
prophecy is actually that that um, space of the masculine, the ego, the the intellect, mm-hmm. the technology, the innovation. Yeah. Um, will destroy us if the feminine does not rise to meet it. That's also a very good point. Yes. <laughs> that, that it's actually, it's, it's not just mm-hmm. like, Oh, the feminine's going to rise up and we're going to fly off all happy. It's like, if, if the feminine does not rise up to meet it and if, if they do not choose to learn from one another, mm. um, that, we're done for as a species on this planet. Yep. There's, there's a, there's an energetic exchange that it's, it's a, it's a back and forth. The, mm-hmm. the eagle needs to learn from the condor and the condor needs to learn from the eagle. And, mm-hmm. and only when that has happened, that integration has happened, will the prophecy be complete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, to kind of go back to tie those two together um i someday hope to be in the position of being a facilitator and to kind of like help bring that um that information and that ability for people to you know elevate the feminine and it's not just the feminine isn't just about women like if people identify with the binary then they all have the people who do, do so all have feminine energy and they all have masculine energy. And I would say that men have suppressed their own feminine energy. Yes. Um, and women have taken on excessive masculine to fit in with the dominant culture. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so for me, it's like, I hope to do that with plant medicine and then, but right now I'm doing that as a dancer. Um, so how do you see plant medicine being like playing a role in that, in, in, in mm-hmm. elevating the, the feminine? Well, it's interesting because I have, there's um, the Aya group that I sit with. Um, they very much so bring like a multicultural, like feminist approach to the way that they serve medicine um, and they make it very clear that like, that is the, the work that they're doing. And once they kind of like open up the container for that is really interesting because during the integration circles, they all like, there's so many people simultaneously having the same experience of like, Oh, like I'm a man. And I'm like examining like all of the ways that like my masculinity shows up and as is destructive. And then you see women being like, Oh, I've seen how I've like suppressed my own like feminine power and magic. And now I want to like learn to release that and to rise into that power and to not like make myself small. So it's, there's something interesting going on and it's with how people right now in our culture seem to be responding to plant medicines. And it seems like a lot of them are coming to the same conclusions after their experiences, especially if the container is set up in such a way that helps them to examine those things. Yeah, so let's talk about container for a moment because, mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking specifically about ayahuasca, and uh, I've seen this in, in with other circles as well too, with other medicines. Uh huh. Like which which medicines? Oh, uh, what's San Pedro? 
those, uh-huh. so those are the the sacred plant medicines that I've sat with in ceremony the most. I don't have much experience with the other the other medicines in a ceremonial context. Uh-huh. Um, container is something that for me I hold is like super super sacred, right? And mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to ayahuasca, I think there's a lot of circles happening especially in the West um, that I would consider like unsafe containers. Absolutely. Um, I've heard some really horrible, horrible stories of some of the things Mm -hmm. that are occurring. And I've, I have sat in circles that are just amazingly magical and beautiful and profound. um, And we're being held by people who were trained up in lineages that are thousands of years old and Mm. um and there's the whole i mean there's the cooking of the medicine there's which medicines are actually being combined and 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 knowing what's going into your medicine i think is really really important Mm. because there Mm -hmm. are also i I mean i think it's fascinating I, i find it fascinating that we're talking about this right now because there seems to be a theme going on on the show <laughs> um, for those who are consistent listeners and listening weekly. Um, you may have noticed that the last couple of episodes we're talking about different plant medicines. And it's, it's, mm. it's interesting to me that this is like coming up, you know, as I'm, you yeah. know, I'm holding this container for, for this um, divine feminine energetic to really be able to, to flourish and, and, and for the, the stigma and the same shame around our sexuality to, uh, to be released that mm-hmm. this, these conversations about plant medicines are being held. Um, mm-hmm. but I do, again, like I did in the, the last conversation that I had feel it as my responsibility in having these mm-hmm. conversations to stress the importance of container and of knowing where your medicines are coming from and who's making them and what, mm-hmm what the lineage is um yeah because there is there's just so much crap out there and people are getting hurt spiritually psychologically and physically Mm -hmm. um when when those things are not being tended to so i just really want to you how do you screen for that how what's your discernment process when it comes to all of that you know, to be honest with you, um, so there's a few different things. A lot I've been I've actually been really lucky. There are about there's about four circles that I sit with, and all of the circles came to me like very, very synchronistic synchronistically, and they all felt like really, really right. Um, so <laughs> I was not the best psychonaut and I did not screen them, um, but I ended up being very lucky. But now that I've like sat with medicine more, um, I do feel like it is more important to screen. Um, if you're able to, obviously talk to the person who is recommending said circle to you and to kind of get their feel for it. Um, if you're able to, if the, if the head facilitator is open to talking to you or one of the head facilitators, depending on how they run, um, I think it's good to ask, like, what's your lineage? What's your experience? And another, another, what's your training, what's your training? Yeah. And another thing that's been coming up for me, um, is that I also, one of the most discouraging things that I see in circles right now is Westerners giving medicine, but then not, and then making money off of it. And I don't think it's inherently bad to like make a living off of it, 
but I do, I do feel like we're some of the most privileged people on the planet and these are indigenous medicines and the cultures that these medicines are coming from are being, you know, they're struggling for survival. Yeah. Thank you. So Mm -hmm. another question I would say is that it's important to ask is how do you give money back to the tribes? Yes. Yeah. How are Um, you returning money to the community that this medicine is being taken from? Right. And it's a lot of things too, where people, um, so the college I went to was very, very liberal. And one of the biggest conversations that came up around was around cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just because something is from a different culture, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't use it, but then it becomes the question of like, how can we use this with respect? Yes. Because I do feel like these plants have a consciousness. Um, there were certain tribes in the Amazon that knew that ayahuasca was going to leave the jungle and that it was going to become a global medicine. But, you know, if people aren't supporting the tribes or giving money back, then I, I, then I do feel like it is culturally appropriative. And it's pretty much just continuing the disease of like Western culture of like, oh, this is here. This is mine now. Well, and I think just to bring it back around to the Eagle Condor prophecy, I mean, this is, this is exactly if we're going to put that into practice, it's not just, oh, I'm going to go and like have an experience or even go down there and have an experience mm-hmm. because there's a lot of people down there that are not in integrity who, who are serving medicines. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and so I think it really, I, I'm so glad that you, that you brought that up and that you're, you're holding that, um, because it's so so vitally important if yeah. we if we're not if if we're not having some level of reciprocity if we're not actually bringing the understanding and the teachings into our practice into our life mm-hmm. um, then we're not living into that prophecy where we are staying in the eagle lane and we're, exactly. we're actually we can <laughs> wear eagle and condors clothing <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know yeah. And just to also um, to give a, a shout out, if there are people out there who are listening who want to find a way to give money to the indigenous, um, Google the BOA Foundation. BOA? Um, my, that, the BOA Foundation, B-O-A. Mm-hmm. Um, that is an organization started by my friend Rudy Randolph. And it is an amazing organization that works to give money back to various indigenous tribes, um, most of which are the tribes that carry medicine. So it's a very easy way if you if you if you feel like you don't know how to give money back to them. Awesome, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. I really, really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to. I guess we're we're coming close to the end of our time, and I'm I'm curious as. As a sex worker, as someone who is is working in these fields, um, this might, it might seem kind of like a, a left field kind of question, but I'm curious Sorry. if you have any message for like young women in our culture today. Ooh, <laughs> hmm. As, as cliche as it is, I would say um, if you are a woman in this culture and you haven't had a chance to really dive deep and study gender studies and feminism, I would really encourage um, women to do so and men, honestly. Um, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people have conversations around the way that 
gender shows up and the way that, you know, we hurt each other based on our various genders. But I feel like a lot of times that thinking can be somewhat flawed because it's coming through the, it, you're, it's coming through people's programming and it oftentimes it's coming through people who haven't done any dismantling process around their gender stereotypes and their gender ideas of like what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man. Um, and if you haven't done the dismantling process, oftentimes you end up perpetrating and continuing a lot of ideas that are handed to us from this culture. And the reason I encourage people to do that is that feminism and gender studies has actually already done a lot of research and a lot of work and gives really ample ways of going through the dismantling process and being able to, um, really look at yourself and to be able to see like, Oh, okay. Like, like for instance, like one of the things that I learned um, when I was studying this stuff in college was how women are socialized to accommodate to men and all of the different ways that this shows up. So it's hard for me to select just like one message to give to women because for me, like doing that personal study ended up giving me so much information and so many different ways of like, oh yeah, this is kind of an unhealthy way that like I'm playing into this stereotype or, oh yeah, this is a way that, you know, masculinity is showing up in my personal relationships that isn't good for my, you know, my partner or for me. So I'm going to ask just because it's, it's, it's coming up. Mm-hmm. So, because you mentioned, you know, women being socialized to, Accommod- to, yeah. to accommodate men. Mm-hmm. Um, isn't the whole sex work industry kind of founded on that? But I'm getting paid for it. Right. And that's, that's the problem too, is that like, I feel like in, I feel like I've just had so many experiences where I've talked to women and they talk about all of the different compromises and all of the different things that they're doing for male partners without kind of realizing like they're doing that at the expense of themselves and ultimately Mm -hmm. the expense of the relationship in the long run, even if it feels like better in the moment to do that. Can you give an example? Um, yeah, I can give an example. So say you're upset at your partner, but you decide to keep it to yourself because you want to keep the peace. You have this idea that you don't want to be too much. You don't want to be too dramatic. So you suppress your feelings and your emotions and you just kind of tell yourself, oh, it's, it's, I'm just being emotional. Like it's not a big deal. Um, so that would be kind of one example that Mm -hmm. I would say that that can play out. Mm-hmm. And then the, the the benefit that the man kind of unconsciously receives in that moment is like a partner that is willing to keep putting aside her emotions in order to quote unquote keep the peace. Right. Yeah. Women are good at that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Women are socialized for social cohesion. Mm. Well, I really want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to come on the show and have this conversation with me. I, I really appreciate it. I think there's a lot of value that, that has been shared and I'm sure our listeners have gotten a ton out of it. I know I have. Mm-hmm. Um, before we sign off, is there, is there anything you just want to make sure that really lands for our listeners? Um, yeah, I guess um, just one more little piece of information that's coming up. I'm not sure why this is coming up, but you know, if you meet 
um, other sex workers, strippers, or what have you, like, just understand that there's a lot of different ways that people can do this work. And one of the things that I've, I've encountered was, I remember I was talking about being a, a dancer in an integration circle. And one of the people said like, oh, as long as you feel empowered by it, what you're doing is okay. And I just kind of want to take a step back that I feel like it's, it's interesting with sex work because I feel like sex work is the one job where you have to love it and you have to feel empowered by it or otherwise people are going to like judge you harshly for it. It's mm. a job. And just like any other job, some people don't like their job mm. um, and it's not the right fit for them, but it's what's working for them in this particular moment and it's what's getting them by. Mm-hmm. And I think I think we need to give more permission for sex workers to not like their job because it's a job just like any other job. Well said. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Well, to our listeners, I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in. If you have not yet joined us in the Superpowers Are Real group on Facebook, please do so. Come and explore superpowerexperts.com. Take the quiz, find out what your superpowers are, come play with us in the programs. There's so much yummy, juicy stuff going on over there, and we want you to be a part of it. So come and check it out. Come play with us. And until next time, go out and love yourself so that you can love the world more deeply. Many, many blessings. Thank you, Tatiana. Thank you, Catherine. Are you ready to discover your superpowers? Go now to superpowerexperts.com and take the superpower quiz today.